Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, on the 15th of August, the Taliban marked a year in power in Afghanistan. This, of course, is their second stint in charge of the country, the last having ended with the US invasion following the 9-11 attacks. At the time, the Taliban was effectively hosting Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda, providing a launch pad for attacks on the USA and its allies. Today, it's all very different. While the new regime is shunned internationally, it would appear that its main threat is to its own people. Since it returned to power, economic and social life has taken a plunge. But most seriously of all, millions of people are facing dire poverty with barely enough to eat to keep them alive. Around 25 million people in a country whose population is 40 million are now living in poverty. So what, if anything, can the outside world do to assist what appears to be a major humanitarian crisis? And is the policy of isolating and imposing sanctions on a country because of the character of the ruling entity correct in this instance? Or is it responsible for heaping further misery on a people who are rapidly losing hope? Irish journalist Hannah McCarthy is one of the few reporters to have actually been in the country since the Taliban takeover. And she's also been closely monitoring its progress up until today through contacts and friends who remain in there. Hannah, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Mick. Hannah, first off, um, I suppose the question a lot of people will probably ask is, how did an Irish journalist like yourself end up in <laughs> Afghanistan? Sure. Uh, well, I, I'm normally based in Beirut in Lebanon, uh, so I, I'm based outside of Ireland anyway. So my work has always been foreign reporting. And I guess I was kind of based more in the Middle East for the last two years, particularly with COVID restrictions. But I guess when, um, like everyone else, last August, I was watching the coverage of the fall of Kabul, and I guess just yes, for me personally, you know, as a journalist, you know, Afghanistan is this reoccurring news story that has, you know, been with me a long time. And since I was a, I was a child, when the invasion happened, I remember the headlines. I remember the protests. I remember kind of all the criticism of George Bush in Ireland. So for me, you know, ultimately, you know, as a foreign reporter, you want to be where those big stories are, where history is happening. Uh, and when I saw what was happening in Kabul, it was something that, I knew I wanted to report on uh, and I knew I was going to kind of try and get there at some point after the takeover. And had you been to Afghanistan prior to the Taliban taking over this time? No, this was actually my first time. So you arrive in there, Hannah, um, and this is around last November, I think you actually... Yeah, I got yeah. in last November, so I had three months after the fall. And tell us, what exactly was it like in your experience? And as you say, you've some experience covering right throughout Asia. 
Yeah, well, it was a bit surreal because honestly, you, by that stage, commercial flights had resumed. So you just you get on a normal flight from Pakistan, you arrive in Kabul airport and it was quite surreal. I was, you know, looking around at the airport and I was just thinking of all the images I'd seen three months ago. I arrived in on a Cam Air flight, uh, which is kind of those kind of famous images of people kind of um, climbing on top of the planes. That was a Cam Air airplane as well, which is the national airline for Afghanistan. So it was kind of surreal. And, you know, in the end, you just you get into a taxi and and you go to stage your accommodation. And then, you know, it had kind of calmed down the city, but everywhere it was all people talked about, you know, for those, you know, people were like, what's going to happen next? So, Hannah, you arrived there by plane. And just in terms of the detail and, and you quite obviously arriving in a place and we know the attitude the Taliban have to women, did you have any trepidation? Did you have any hassle? You're moving around, you're going from the airport to the hotel. That aspect of things and going about your daily work, did their regime impinge on you in any way in that respect? Um, it was a bit nerve-wracking. I mean, getting off the airplane for the first time, going through, you know, the Taliban-controlled kind of um, customs at the airport. But, you know, I and I was dressed conservatively going through the airport. But, you know, as ever, once you kind of start meeting people and you get a bit more comfortable in the city, you know, I was wearing a hijab. I was wearing conservative clothing. I was not wearing a burqa. I wasn't wearing like a full abaya. And then what else? I also had a friend who had been in Afghanistan for the fall uh, and he'd recommended me um, this translator um, who was also a female. Um, so to be honest, we kind of went around the city and I kind of mirrored her with my dress. So, you know, she would she would wear a hijab and kind of a long jacket. So, you know, I wore similar clothes to her. What I will say is as a Western female journalist, I, I don't have the same restrictions as local Afghan women, at least at that point. I think it's gotten trickier, but it, it's not the same kind of pressure. So I think I had one moment on the street where an Afghan told me to wear something different. And that is actually part of the the problem in the sense you kind of think you're fine. And, you know, there's a very malleable type of law at the moment where you just don't know when they're going to say something or maybe kind of provoke a response. Yeah, concerning, I can imagine. And what strikes me about that, Hannah, is that, um, and, and presumably you, 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 you've you come into contact with a lot of local people and local women in particular, but if you have a scenario, and again, particularly for women who grew up after the US invasion in 2001, and they grew up in with relative freedoms by Asian standards and what have you, and then suddenly, perhaps in their 30s or even 40s for those who would have been young children at the time, bang, they're tr- thrust immediately into this regime where effectively their rights are stripped. Yeah, and I think I think we all have a bit more of an understanding of what it means to be confined to your home after covid because, I mean, that's what's happened for a lot of these women, you know, women who, you know, had social lives, they went to cafes, they had friends, they were living in a kind of, particularly in the cities, maybe not in the rural areas, but in the city areas, you know, people had a social life just like anyone else. And they've spent now a year calculating whether it's worth the risk to go out to the market or whether they need to go out to the market because they have no alternative. So, um, you know, I, I, I've done two interviews with Mary Ellen McGrower, she, the Irish head of the World Food Programme, and, you know, she points out that Afghanistan, you know, after four decades of war, has the highest rate of widows in the world. So, you know, when we talk about women being restricted, we're talking about, you know, the head of the household not being able to leave or 
having to take a big risk in order to, you know, try and sell some fruit or, you know, make some money in order to feed their family because there is simply no alternative for them. Yeah, that puts it in a different context, as you say, the, the, the high level of, of uh, widows and, and, and them being the head of the household in a country where women are markedly second class and not third class citizens. That really brings it home on, on a greater level again. Now, when the Taliban came in this time, initially they put out noises that, uh, oh no, things are going to be different, we're not going to roll back, we're new Taliban, so to speak. Uh, I get the impression that gradually they have reverted back to what it was like prior to 2001. Yeah, you know, it it was fascinating being in Kabul last November because there obviously was this this charm offensive, particularly with foreign press. So, you know, I was able to interview Taliban ministers, you know, they were facilitating visits. And, you know, there I met some of the younger Taliban, you know, the Taliban that weren't involved in the government in the 90s. And, you know, they were speaking fluent English. They were talking about reading the New York Times and, you know, how they thought it was relatively balanced. Like some of the conversations were kind of, you know, surreal in terms of the image you would have of the Taliban. Uh, and, you know, the kind of interviews I had were often the kind of, yeah, the English-speaking Taliban who were saying, yeah, we want girls to go back to school. Uh, we want, you know, an Islamic state. But, you know, we just want to be able to run the country. And, you know, it's the West that, um, you know, devastated the country and has left it in ruins. Um, not unfair comments. But um, they clearly don't have the power which is my takeaway in the sense that they were obviously, you know, charismatic, press-friendly mouthpieces, but it's really obvious that they're not in control. Uh, and it's very clear that the Taliban is not this kind of, you know, one unified group, that there is quite big divides in terms of people who say, look, why don't we just play along in order to get the money? Or like, what's the big problem with girls going back to school? And like, what I would note is that, you know, for the Taliban who um, live in, for example, Qatar, they send their girls to school. The senior Taliban, most of them are sending their children uh, and their girls to school. They're fine with that if it's their family. It's just others that they have a problem with. That says a lot in itself. And as you say, would it be fair to say that different standards apply? So, for instance, Kabul, obviously the capital, major city versus, and it is not dissimilar to the way Ireland was not too long ago, largely a rural uh population to a large extent that you have very different standards outside the cities. Yeah, and and it is worth pointing out that in some parts of Afghanistan, you know, burqas were still very common. Um the kind of liberalization is very uneven. Um you know, there there still was overall um kind of low levels of girls education in some parts of Afghanistan. So for some of them Sorry, that's pr prior to the Taliban coming to Pakistan. Even them come prior come to coming back um so for example in Kandahar which is where the Taliban were formed. It's in southern Afghanistan. Most women wore burqas before then. It wasn't that suddenly the Taliban came back last August and that changed. Um, girls were going to school. Kandahar is a city. Um, but in lots of rural parts uh, of Afghanistan, the biggest issue in terms of girls going to school was actually not, you know, community support for education, but the fact that there was heavy fighting. So there is evidence that in some parts of rural Afghanistan, there's actually more girls going to school since the fighting last started last summer. Obviously, this is to primary schools. But again, there's a real piecemeal approach. The provinces all kind of have their own local government. So in some provinces, girls are going to secondary school. 
overall, mostly they're not, but there are pockets where where that's different. Okay, and taking Kabul for a minute, did you sense when you were there, is there much support for the Taliban and the regime they want to impose, or is it completely done uh, by force of arms? Well, I mean, I think the whole point of the Kabul takeover, that it was this kind of quiet, I mean, essentially non-violent takeover. Um, but that would not, that does not suggest that people in any way support the Taliban. I mean, you know, Kabul is, you know, the cosmopolitan, you know, urban centre of Afghanistan and the Taliban are a rural Pashtun force. So, um, you know, Kabul is a diverse city, much like Afghanistan. You have a lot of different ethnic groups um, who don't see their own community in the government. Uh, so, for example, Hazaras um, are not represented in the government. They are a kind of more liberal um, Shia community um, in Kabul. Um, they'd always kind of put a big emphasis on girls' education. Um, so there's absolute, like, I mean, I mean, people recognize there's not an alternative. There is no one, there is no real alternative outside of a few pockets of opposition around the country to the Taliban. People understand that, you know, this is not their first time at regime change. This is not the first time, uh, you know, they've had kind of new forces coming into the city. Um, so, I mean, it's a very mixed emotion between resignation that the Taliban are here. Um, but while, I mean, I wouldn't say there's like support, I think there's a kind of an intelligent understanding of the situation people are in. Yeah, and I'll come to the humanitarian aspects and all the issues that arise there in a minute. But just sticking with the, the politics of it first, I mean, you seem to be painting a picture that certainly for the foreseeable future, there is absolutely no alternative to the Taliban. And that in terms of both politically, culturally, socially, where the country's at at the moment, that will only change if the Taliban decide it's in their best interests to change or to just give the impression of change. Yeah, I think most people uh, would not be betting on a regime change from the Taliban in, in the short or medium term. Uh, that doesn't seem likely. At the same time, you know, there is, you know, a whole generation that have grown up with certain freedoms. Um, that is hard to roll back. People losing something is very different to never having it in the first place. And, you know, while we haven't seen a, you know, a big protest movement, there are pockets of protest. We saw some very brave women out um, last week protesting um, around the anniversary of the fall, demanding education and access to jobs. Uh, it's also just not sustainable for them to have the kind of segregated economy where, you know, you have women looked after by women doctors and girls going to girls schools if you don't educate women because you need to have female midwives, you need to have female nurses, you need to have female doctors. Uh, so, I mean, there's no sustainable vision coming from the Taliban. That doesn't mean that they won't hang on for quite a while. And I guess on that point about the fact that the Taliban are kind of the only show in town for the foreseeable future, I think it's kind of why some people struggle to understand the sanctions, because the sanctions are obviously designed to punish the Taliban. At the same time, no one thinks they're about to overthrow the Taliban through the banking sanctions. They're going to keep them maybe weaker than they would be otherwise, but it's a very, very blunt instrument in terms of targeting, you know, the senior Taliban leadership. Yeah, that's and it's not just in Afghanistan that's controversial and disputed, but we've seen even some some suggest today, for example, in relation to Russia. But that's a separate matter altogether. 
To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Coming so to the sanctions and that kind of thing, um, you mentioned banking. And in that respect, as I understand it, this comes down literally to issues of they have a diaspora in Afghanistan, no more than we had here, a very marked one up until recent decades. And you'd have people with remittances sending money back home. The The banking sanctions, as I understand it, has impacted on that to the extent that people can send home money to their siblings, their parents, whomever, literally to just survive. Yeah, so you, they cannot send money through the traditional banking system. Um, so, you know, their current account cannot receive money from Ireland or the UK or the US. So what people have to do is instead um, use money kind of old fashioned kind of money transfer systems like Western Union, um, which function basically for kind of small amounts. And there's kind of limits on the cash that people can take out. Um, but they're also very expensive. And, you know, a lot of the Afghan diaspora, I mean, particularly the ones that evacuated in August, you know, these people left, you know, without their savings, without any, without kind of any support for themselves and their new lives, really. Um, so people are trying to send back, you know, money that they can, but they're being charged huge amounts. Um, and again, they struggle to get the amounts that they need to get back in order to make, you know, quite large families have the support they need, uh, considering that the families in Afghanistan have lost their jobs uh, they've lost access to their life savings because of the banking sanctions and the asset freezers. Uh, and they're also facing a massive inflationary spiral. So since the Taliban came over from the economy's point of view, things have largely come to a halt. You wrote a piece, Hannah, for the examiner, I think it was last December, and you described uh, some of the people trying to get by. And in one instance, a man who was earning a few cents here and there, literally, by uh, doing some very menial work. I mean, there was some class of a functioning economy prior to the Taliban coming, but now I get the impression that's largely ground to a halt. So Mick, the story actually that really stuck with me um, when I was in Afghanistan last year was I went to a neonatal unit uh, in Kabul. So, you know, I'm in a kind of unit, there's all these very small premature babies, you know, there's beeping. These are babies that need a lot of care. And, you know, there's a nurse kind of tending to them. And I, I talked to some of the mothers there. And at the end, the nurse comes up to me and she's like, I am the only person working in my family. Uh, I haven't been paid in months. I can't keep turning up to work if I'm paying to come to work. Please talk about this. Because the problem with the sanctions back then, at least, was that 
people were not being paid their salaries. So if you worked for a public hospital, you you were seeing no salary for months. And the amazing thing was that these people were still turning up to work. Um, and I mean, the, I, I find that amazing uh, to see. And people had a real dedication um, to their staff. I mean, some of these babies were being abandoned, like like mothers were dying in, in childbirth and there was fathers who said, I can't, I can't afford it to look after another child and they were being left and staff at these hospitals take in these children. Um, so that's the kind of level of desperation um, that was happening, certainly certainly last winter. So I know now there have been exemptions made for the sanctions that now allow public staff to receive salaries through NGOs and the, in these kind of routes that bypass the traditional banking system. Um, that's a very complicated thing to do. And these staff also still don't have proper access to their savings. And also what we know is that if you have any long period where families don't have access to their salaries, you increase their vulnerability. You in increase the chance that they've taken out debt or loans. Uh, you've already made them very vulnerable. So that's what kind of the US did in terms of the sanctions and the way they left Afghanistan. So you seem to be saying, Anna, the sanctions are, are a large part contributing to the humanitarian disaster. So Mick, can I go on a little bit of a tangent that I promise will come no, back to the story? Yeah, yeah. So I was, I was reading a book earlier in the year and actually I just thought it was a good story maybe for, for an Irish audience. So um, it's a book by Carlotta Gall, the Afghanistan reporter for the New York Times. Uh, and she talks about um, how NATO and US forces in Afghanistan used to constantly call in airstrikes during the war. So any time they came up to Taliban militants or even thought they were near them, they'd call in air support. So air support's very effective. It also has huge collateral damage. So you're looking for two Taliban fighters and you end up kind of carpet bombing a whole village. So, you know, whole weddings and whole families were killed. And she said she was talking to an Afghan official who said, you know, the British, they would not have done that in Belfast. You know, if you're looking for uh, one terrorist, you don't bomb a whole village. Uh, and I thought that was actually a great way to remind people of what's involved. You know, because there's 10 members of the IRA on the Foils Road does not mean you're allowed carpet bomb the Foils Road. So there was huge, there was huge collateral yeah. damage with these attacks. And the New York Times actually did a big bit of reporting on the civilian casualties that came from that. So, you know, the ratio of, you know, dead militants to casualties was huge. So what I would say with these sanctions is you're trying to target these militants, but the casualties are way out of proportion. And as much as it's sad that they were trying, okay, so with the with the airstrikes, they were trying to kill two militants, militants and they killed you know a family of 40. This is way bigger. The banking sanctions have the capacity to kill, you know, millions. And while, you know, we can talk about the justification of weakening the Taliban, you know, on a very real level, if you weaken an economy like that, that is the end result. There is food in Afghanistan. People simply have no money to buy it. Yeah, it's a very good comparison, actually. Yeah, I, I take your point. And just coming from the contraview then, Hannah, um, and I think, I think it's fair to say that it's not just the Americans. I think it's more widespread in terms of the West and, and even some countries in Asia. But no, no doubt it's driven primarily by the Americans because they're the biggest power in that respect. But what do you do so if you have a scenario like the Taliban coming in? Well, first of all, look, NGOs are now already working in the country. 
um, there's already they already have exemptions for humanitarian aid. So they all are able to, you know, give people cash transfer programs. They're able to like give people $50 for winter. But I mean, you know, look, on a on a human dignity level, Afghans don't want $50 from the UN for food and oil. They want the $2,000 in their bank account. And, you know, at the same, and, you know, that's the best way to give people, you know, a kind of resilient um, chance to survive the winter without having to rely on aid. Uh, and we know that that's like a more dignified way to help them. Um, the problem also with just having exemptions for humanitarian aid is that people are constantly in crisis mode. And look, they got through the winter without a so-called famine last winter, but we know that there's less attention on Afghanistan this winter. So the fact that there's only ever humanitarian aid and that a, the normal economy cannot function, you, you cannot have a normal functioning economy without a banking sector. And I spoke with a UN official when I was in Kabul and he said, you know, I've just never seen anything like it. The Afghan budget before the Taliban takeover was funded 80% by overseas donors. And that was wiped out overnight. Even if you were a strong economy, you would not be able to survive that. So the kind of shock you're seeing, I mean, it, it gives Afghanistan no chance to, um, to have a resilient economy. Absolutely. And just one other element in that regard, and this again is, would, would be coming from a point of view, I can well imagine that some people would retort in terms of sanctions. We saw there, and I forget the man's name, but he's one of the leaders of Al-Qaeda and the Americans got him with a drone bombing. I think it was in Kabul, but it was in Afghanistan. And they might well say that the Taliban are continuing to host Al-Qaeda, whose aim is to attack America, and therefore they feel compelled to act in this manner. You, you, you know yourself, some people would come forward with that position. What would you say to that, Hannah? Well, I mean, they have these big sanctions on now and that still happened. So they're obviously not particularly well targeted at that. Um, you know, if you're trying to like, if you're trying to monitor that, then, you know, good intelligence, you know, America's supposed to have these amazing intelligence operations. You know, you're supposed to have good support from the community that will tell you what's happening. That's the way um, to get a better understanding of when you have oper operatives like Al-Qaeda there. The banking sanctions, like, there's just, I mean, these groups operate outside of banking systems. They they know how to move money around without, you know, going through an AIB account or a Bank of Ireland account. Um, so, I mean, they've got the sanctions on and that they, he was still living there. Um, and I think it also suggests, there's also suggestions that, I mean, part of the Taliban knew he was there, part of them didn't. So that's also something. So they have to look at how can they appeal to the more moderate part? How can they strengthen that? How can they, you know, use a bit of carrot there to bring them over to a more moderate side? Yeah, and I suppose another view that would be, certainly a lot of people might have it, is that what's happening there is behind closed doors. The Americans, uh, the American military industrial complex, if you want to put it that way, for, for, for whatever it's worth, uh, their main thing is that this is not going to bring them any bad publicity. They're going to get their men thereafter. And therefore, if there's so-called, that horrible term, collateral damage, there's a certain uh, feeling that some of them are, are, are quite happy to do that. But the point you are making and making very well is that what some of them would describe as collateral damage is in effect a major humanitarian crisis, not just in terms of those who might die, for instance, at the hands of American bombs, but primarily 
to the effect that sanctions is having on the basic functioning of the economy in order for people to be able to, at the most basic level, feed themselves? I think the biggest problem for the Afghan people is they're caught between two kind of major forces that both are fine with collateral damage. The US is fine with it and the Taliban are essentially fine with it. Uh, and I think, you know, that's what, you know, the international community have to remember. You have to like think of all these people that did not vote for the Taliban, that did not vote for the US, that did not vote for the Soviets, um, but have been paying the price for the last, you know, 40, 50 years. Very true. What about the neighbouring countries to Afghanistan, Hannah? In general, what is their attitudes? So there's been huge amounts of migration to Pakistan, also to Iran. But again, these are not wealthy countries. Uh, the kind of conditions that Afghans are facing in Iran are pretty dire. You may have seen some of the reporting, but uh, there's evidence. There's actually been some articles on it, I and mean, you can see the photos. But there's Afghan men selling their kidneys in order to feed their family. Uh, that is something you can only do once. Um, that's how desperate the decision is. Um, we're also seeing a lot of reports of early um, child marriage because families simply do not have the resources to feed their children. Um, Pakistan has taken, I mean, Pakistan and Afghanistan are culturally quite close. Um, Pashtuns are actually kind of divided by the border. So you've got kind of half the community in Pakistan and half in Afghanistan. So there's been a lot of migration between those communities. Pakistan is trying to stem that flow. Um, but you have people taking huge risks um, and kind of trying to get smuggled across the border. Um, you know, people are desperate to get out and they don't feel like they have a huge amount of hope in Afghanistan. And that, of course, is another issue that arises because we've seen, for example, in parts of Africa and other elsewhere in the developing world, that when there is war, people are naturally going to flee. But, and, and it's, it's, it's tiny comfort from their point of view, but at least there's some routes out of some of those countries that might bring them somewhere better off, either, for example, Northern Africa or with luck from their point of view to Europe. But even that kind of flight, that kind of uh, immigration is highly restricted in a place as remote as Afghanistan. Yeah, sure. And there are people who make the route through Turkey and try and get to Europe. And it's even one of these things of like the unfairness, like some people got on evacuation flights last August and got flown into Europe. And there's some people in very similar situations who have made the journey by land. They've managed to reach a country in the EU and they're not receiving any of the same resources, despite, you know, having credible cases that, you know, they were human rights activists or associated with certain embassies. Um, so it is, it's a desperate situation. And I mean, if you create situations where people feel like they have no hope and they just aren't confident that they can feed their families, you're going to see this kind of mass movement, which it hasn't happened in the same levels. I mean, there was a much bigger wave of uh, migration from Afghanistan in 2015. Um, that hasn't happened yet, but that's partially because um, borders, the border response has been a lot stronger. If you were an optimist, Hannah, where would you see things going in the next 12 months? I think this winter will be tougher than the last one. A famine was averted last winter, but they didn't have the Ukrainian war. Um, they didn't have um, the level of deprivation you're seeing in, in Africa as well. I think it's going to be a very, very difficult winter. And I think people's resources are stretched much further. Uh, I wouldn't have hoped that the situation is going to improve in the next 12 months, but I would hope that, you know, there is a turning point where, um, you know, the Taliban become a bit more moderate and 
people are get, being given kind of, you know, access to savings. Girls are given more access to education. Those are the kind of things we should hope for. And the other thing that strikes me is um, historically what the Afghans have been subjected to from invaders of one hue or another, going back to the British, the Russians. What is it about the country that it, it seems so fated with ill luck and, and um, so much a target from outsiders to come in and basically mess up people's lives in one form or another? I mean, geographically, it's kind of at this point, um, you know, between all these different empires, you know, historically. And also, I mean, Afghanistan, the, the concept of Afghanistan is a fairly modern invention. You know, the actual border was only really kind of enshrined in, um, what was it? It was when India became a, got its um, independence. Uh, so which 1947, 47, I think. So that's only really when you got the modern idea of Afghanistan. Um, for example, Pashtuns who are the ethnic group of Taliban, they're in both Pakistan and Afghanistan. Their culture goes back thousands of years. It goes back before Islam. It goes back before Afghanistan. So there's all that this region, this region was a lot more uh, nomadic. The kind of lot, like borders that we've imposed on it um, over the last kind of century, two centuries have created kind of this kind of power dynamics. And I think it's also a very ethnically diverse country. So you have all these different groups. You have, you know, Shia community, Afghanistan, that, you know, people kind of say is aligned with Iran. You have Tajiks who are obviously connected with Tajikistan, Uzbeks who are connected with Uzbekistan, Pashtuns in Pakistan. So, I mean, it, it, to, it's to agree, uh, to a degree, you know, a bit of an arena for proxy wars because it is such a melting pot. Yeah, and it's definitely somewhere I think that we have to, those of us on the outside, attempt to keep some focus on because what the people are having to deal with and what they're facing into now in terms of a humanitarian crisis and particularly in today's world, when God knows there's so much going on in so many places, but I think definitely the lot of the Afghani people is really uh, tragic and it has been for some time. Hannah McCarthy, thank you very much for joining us today and for your insights into what, as I say, is a very serious global tragedy right now. Thanks so much for having me on, Mick. And if you don't mind, I'll just add in a little plug for my radio documentary on the fall of Kabul. It's out on RT Radio 1 on the 27th of August. It's called The Taliban and Me, and it follows the stories of two Irish women who were in Kabul for the fall last August uh, and one Afghan judge. Uh, you can download it as a podcast from the Doc on one as well. That's it for today, folks. Uh, I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, and thank you for listening. We'll talk next week and keep an ear out for the Irish Examiner's podcast series on the Civil War. I interviewed a whole range of, of, I have to say, fascinating historians and scholars on all aspects of the war, and the series will be launched in the next few days. Stay well and we'll talk soon. 
which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.